This is The Crucible. The JRTC Experience. This is Conversations with the Enemy. In this series, we discuss Op 4 warfighting skills and lessons learned in a decisive action training environment for large-scale combat operations at JRTC. Uh, gentlemen, uh, my name is Colonel Ed Twadell. I'm the, I'm the Deputy Commander of Ops Group, uh, and on behalf of uh, the COG, uh, glad to have you with us, and, and thank you for taking some time out of your day today uh, to, to give us some thoughts on the on, uh, uh, Russian force structure and, and how that applies as we as we look towards the uh, Lusco and, and the conduct of operations therein. A note from the podcast team. While this episode was filmed mere weeks prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, the information presented here isn't based on it. Instead, the assessment was largely formed from Russia's 2014 annexation of the Crimean Peninsula. Their activity in eastern Ukraine prior to the 2022 conflict, Cold War-esque saber-rattling regarding the Baltics, and their combat operations in support of Syria. For uh, for the team, for the, obviously, uh, Dr. Grau and Mr. Bartles are, are joining us this afternoon from, from Fort Leavenworth. Um, Dr. Grau has, has spent a good portion of his of his life uh, studying the Russian military, uh, and as Everyone uh, that's dialed in is, is aware as the U.S. Army uh, shifts its focus away from COIN and back towards uh, large-scale combat operations or, or LISCO after 20 years plus of, of kind of COIN-focused, COIN-centric operations, uh, the, the massive formations uh, that uh, our, our potential or our adversaries of potential foes uh, bring to the battlefield it's imperative that we really start looking at that. And as we start thinking about why are they, uh, why would they do it in this way, uh, you know, know, know your enemy, know the terrain, and know yourself. We know why we do things. Um, we don't necessarily have a good understanding of, of how, uh, in this case, the, the Russians, uh, and in potentially other discussions, the, the Chinese, the North Koreans, uh, or, or uh, other, other adversaries, state adversaries out there, uh, approach warfare. Uh, so I was glad to see as I was looking through the slides, I was glad to see discussion of, of different thoughts uh, and different uh, intellectual approaches uh, to, to warfare and, and to combat. The, the bottom line of, of, of all of this, of this introduction, is to just impress upon all of us as, as professionals um, conduct of combat operations. Uh, and as we as we go forward and pass this on uh, to to the next generation of, of soldiers, uh, that there's different approaches to this, and we really you know taken the time to step back and, and listen to experts like uh, Mr. or excuse me, Dr. Grau, Mr. Bartles, uh, as they as they uh, have been looking at this problem set for quite some time. Uh, it, it becomes all the more important for us to to understand and, and practice the mental agility to transition away from a coin and, and realize where our knowledge gaps are and, and move out smartly to, to fill those knowledge gaps. Uh, so uh, without further ado, uh, Dr. Grau and Mr. Bartles, uh, please take the floor. Uh, the mic is yours. Over. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. But today we'd like to talk about Russian force structure and fires for large-scale combat operations, which um, if all you've been doing is coin is certainly a, is a, certainly a different theater, uh, Chuck. Yeah. Hey, just to give kind of the like the atmospherics before we get cracking. Uh, see the the gentleman here on the right of your screen. It's uh, Leon Trotsky, and uh, I know you're, what you're thinking is, hey man, why are you so, showing me this old Bolshevik that got whacked out, God knows when, back in the day? And uh, the reason I'm showing it to you because of this quote that he has up here. It says, "Our class enemies are empiricists. That is, they operate from one case to the next." Guided not by the analysis of historical development, but by practical experience, routine, coup de l'oeil, and flair. And uh, he said this back in 1921, but I swear to God, it's just as true today as when he said it 
back in the day. So we'll talk a little bit about what that means and uh, some of this kind of different way they have of thinking and uh, kind of how that influences them. But they have kind of this, we get into dialectics, but they have this kind of this dialectical mindset where uh, they kind of look at the operating environment a little bit differently. And kind of how that impacts them is, you know, we have all these kind of nice, neat acronyms we like classifying the world by, you know, PEMISI, ends, ways, means, center of gravity. They just, they don't talk like that normally. Uh, it's just not the way they kind of frame up the operational environment. They don't think about it that way. They, they never, you know, it's considered bad form for their staff to go through and, and put things like in a model or, uh, you know, these kind of paradigms. They don't want their staff doing that. They want their, especially their operational level guys, they want them going out there and looking at each situation and, uh, making an independent assessment, not trying to throw it in these these models and paradigms. So, and then the way they do that, the way they believe you should do, uh, you know, kind of assess the operational environment is not by, you know, I said that these, these acronyms that we use, but by uh, looking at historical development and historical trends. That's sort of that the way they, they kind of see the world. So, um, you know, they definitely use big data, AI, that kind of thing, but uh, they're, they're very much more historically focused. So uh, if you go to Russian academies today and you look at what they're teaching them, they still go back, they talk they talk all the time about what happened in World War II. I mean, it, it's, it's just like it happened yesterday for them. If you look in their, in their classrooms, in their training areas, they have all these diagrams of World War II battles and they, they can talk about them just like they happened last week because they're still studying those battles. The, the, the character of war may change, but its nature doesn't you know, if, you're, if you're a Clausewitz guy. So... Uh, if you want to really want to know where, understand the Russians, if you want to know where these guys are going, you really have to know where they've been because that's how their operational planners are thinking. So the kind of the implications for that is um, they have a very different MDMP process. I'm not going to get into, but I mean, they just have a different MDMP process. They do not believe in war fighting functions or once they don't believe in it, they just don't assess things based on war fighting functions. Um, it's just a foreign way of doing things. They have a different way of, of assessing that. And uh, probably the, the biggest difference that you kind of see is this dialectical thinking is, is instead of doing things capability based like we do like we do everything the u.s army's capability based yeah you know this unit has these these capabilities the the way the russians are focused is they're threat based they build their military to defeat a certain threat so if you guys think about this on an op four perspective you know what's the what's the goal of an op four right you know the op four's goal is not to defeat the you know, the guys are training against, the, you know, the goal is to train them against their metal tasks, right? You know, to make sure they're using all those war fighting functions and uh, they're getting stressed appropriately so they can, so they can improve. That's not the, the goal of the Russians. The Russians don't care about improving <laughs> war fighting functions. They only, you know, their goal, their end state is uh, defeating the U.S. or NATO in, in uh, combined arms operations under nuclear threat conditions. So it's a, it's a very different kind of a, a mindset for these guys. You guys probably know who this is, Gerasimov, and they talk about this dialectical thinking. If you, if you read this quote here, I mean, it doesn't make a lot. I mean, it's in English and everything, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense to you until you understand he's kind of operating off this, this dialectical paradigm, this dialectical model of thinking. And that's why he keeps on talking about, like, particular lines of thought or historical development. That's why you see all these Russian senior leaders talking this way, because they have this, this kind of mindset. And if you look at the very bottom line, he says, you know, you know, each it's paraphrasing another great Russian thinker, uh, Alexander Svechin, but he's saying uh, each each conflict is its own unique thing, and you can't apply a certain model. Back to that later in the brief, this this kind of different way of doing things. And uh, kind of moving right along, uh, I'm not going to get into real this. This year, these are some kind of Russian kind of visualizations or doc temps or whatever you want to call them of uh, how they kind of in. For artillery planning purposes of how they envision like large-scale combat operations between us nato and, and the russian units and the details aren't important i just i'm just going to point out what the, what's generally going on in the uh in these next three slides and then i'll tell you you know what the takeaway is but if you see this one you see a, a us nato division attacking a russian brigade right so us nato division armor division attacking a uh, russian brigade Four U.S. NATO corps attacking three Russian combined arms armies or tank armies, operational level formations in the, a U.S. field army, you know, with a bunch of corps uh, attacking the Russian Western military district. And the reason we're showing these to you is because just kind of drive home a point. You know, uh, you know, we've been looking at everything going on in uh, the Ukraine, and you see the Russian using battalion tactical groups. You know, battalion tactical groups is is the right tool for the right job in Ukraine. <laughs> 
But uh, when it comes to large-scale combat operations, it's, it's all about the division and the brigade and higher echelons and those different capabilities that those different echelons have. So, I mean, I definitely think the battalion tactical group is important and less, you know, less has been on the ground floor of the battalion tactical group. But when it comes to these large-scale combat operations, uh, they're definitely thinking in terms of brigades and divisions out there and the, and the division subordinate regiments. It's, it's not, uh, you know, uh, uh, a U.S. Corps is not going to be fighting against, you know, 30 different battalion tactical groups. They're going to be fighting against, you know, brigades, divisions, and, uh, you know, maybe the occasional battalion tactical group that's been that's been searched forward. But, you know, it's just a different scale of thinking. And just to kind of some more scene setting, I know uh, we deal with a lot of misconceptions. I know you guys are used to working with the Op 4 and, uh, uh, you know, based on the, the TC series of manuals. And, uh, you know, they, those guys got some great stuff over there, but uh, we just have some different definitions and different problems when we're talking to uh, guys that are used to uh, engaging with the op for but generally we talk about BTGs or battalion tactical groups and battalions with attachments now they sound like they're the same thing but for the Russian perspective you're two very different things uh, the Russians have used battalions with attachments for a long time you know back in the so you know World War II they would they would attach you know artillery and tanks to uh, motorized rifle battalions and send them forward the battalion tactical groups is a, you know, when did the battalion tactical group start or when did they start doing that? Well, they late, started late 90s or 90s, uh, early yeah, 90s. Yeah, early 90s, early 90s. As battalion tactical groups. They've been working on the concept for sure. decades before so, that. So the, the battalion tactical group is a, it's kind of, a, I wouldn't say ad hoc, uh, it's sort of a semi permanent formation that they have. And these guys train together. They have better quality, you know, qualitatively better. They train together, um, have higher standards than, than, uh, than the standard units. And the, the gist of it is, is you could have, you could theoretically, if you were looking at the imagery, you could have a battalion tactical group and you could have a battalion with attachments. They would have exactly the same kit, but uh, the Russians would call one a battalion with attachments and the other one a battalion tactical group. And honestly, the battalion tactical group would probably be qualitatively a lot better fighting force because these guys are training together as opposed to the battalion with attachments, which is just your standard battalion that has some stuff thrown with it. So those are two different kind of things, right? Uh, you just got to keep in mind. So usually the takeaway is that the battalion tactical groups are usually better trained, but, um, you know, they, they do use the battalions with attachments and you'll see them use that a lot. It's, it's very common. The other thing is we hear a lot of term like brigade tactical group or division tactical group. Again, that, that's a op four term, not a, uh, a Russian military term. Uh, in, in the Russian system, the, um, uh, the lowest level combined arms formation in the, in the ground forces in the Russian army is the uh, brigade or regiment, right? That's the lowest level combined arms formation in the uh, in the Russian armed forces. And uh, the Russians use the term battalion tactical group because uh, when, it, when it's a battalion tactical group, it actually has all these uh, additional elements kind of assigned or, uh, attached to it or assigned to it. I don't know how you want to look at it, but um, it, has, it has these artillery and armor and, and all these other things, these other things a battalion tactical group can have. So, when you see these, the reason they don't use the term brigade tactical group is because, so they they never call a uh, you know, a brigade a brigade tactical group because it's by definition for them a combined arms formation. The only time when you will see them use that term is sometimes they talk about U.S. units or NATO units, foreign units. They'll sometimes they'll call our stuff a brigade tactical group just to make sure they're not confusing like an armor brigade with a civil affairs brigade. You know what they I mean? Like more like a maneuver unit. So that's the only time you really see them use the term. Uh, brigade tactical group when they're talking about a U.S. unit to make sure they're not confusing it with a uh, threat-based. What, what do you mean by threat-based? It has a big implication for their MTO, for their uh, uh, manning and manning tables. So since these units are threat-based, you know, we like having like a brigade, you know, an armor brigade in the fourth ID probably looks just like an armor brigade in third ID, right? Russians a little bit different. It's all about where they're geographically located and the threat they're going to be focused against. So if uh, if that unit, you know, if there's a lot of bridging, if there's a lot of rivers in that area, maybe they have a lot more bridging units and amphibious capabilities. So uh, there's a big difference between these different Russian combined arms armies, you know, like the sixth combined arms army up by uh, St. Petersburg versus the first guards tank army, which is closer to Moscow. You know, those two formations have drastically different equipment. So you really got to look, you can't really, you're not going to, you really can't fight against a typical Russian brigade 
all these Russian brigades look very different. You know, there's a big difference between the. You really have to look at what kind of brigade you're fighting. So there's not just one Russian motorized rifle brigade out there. There's a bunch of different motorized rifle brigades and a bunch of just, you know, qualitatively very different in terms of, of kit they have. So you really have to look at which unit you're fighting to know, you know, what, what you're trying to replicate. And as I said earlier, very different MDMB process, no concept of war fighting functions. So, uh, you know, obviously you're going to describe because that's the way we do things. We describe their actions in terms of war fighting functions, but uh, the Russian staff does not assess the threat in terms of war fighting function. That's that's definitely a foreign concept to them. Just a bunch of different reasons. They generally have smaller units than we do, smaller staffs, and a lot less planning. I mean, you're talking a uh, uh, battalion headquarters is two or three vehicles, and then a uh, uh, brigade headquarters is you know five or six vehicles. We'll, we'll see some of the diagrams later, but there's not a lot of vehicles. You know the staffs are very small, and they don't you know they don't require as much planning time to, to do the different MDMB process. They just don't need as much planning as uh, we do. It's just a different way of doing things. Get an idea of, of how the units are are smaller, and you ever heard the old saying? You know Eskimos have uh, you know 15 words for snow. Well the Russians have 15. You know was it four different words for military unit based on what that thing does and uh, it just kind of helps them differentiate between the capabilities of different units and generally speaking when we talk about combined arms units those are used what they call chast ninia, the two in the middle and then uh, battalion level and below are usually considered subunits it's a really important differentiation for them and it's just kind of how they they measure capabilities but if you look on the on the right side to look at the chart you can get an idea of how much smaller these units are you think about how many guys are in a, a u.s artillery brigade compared to in a uh, or i'm sorry u.s artillery battalion compared to a russian artillery battalion i don't know maybe 200 soldiers in a in a russian artillery battalion i suppose what maybe 600 in, in a u.s one or 600 or 800 i mean they're, they're a lot qualitatively a lot bigger in terms of personnel. You know, the motorized rifle division, they, they have about 10 of them right now in the Russian ground forces. They did away with them and they brought them back. One thing you have to know about the motorized rifle divisions is uh, we talked about all these units look a lot differently, look a lot different. And one of the things about the motorized rifle divisions is most of the motorized rifle divisions are missing a regiment. So you, you think of the three in one formula, you know, three motorized rifle, one tank for a motorized rifle unit or uh, three tank and one uh, motorized rifle regiment for a uh, division. Well, most of these Russian units, most of these Russian motorized rifle divisions are at least missing one regiment. And a few of them, you know, instead of having a tank regiment, it has a reinforced tank battalion. So you have to look at the specific unit you're looking at. It's very, uh, it's, it's, I would imagine from a training perspective, it's tough to train against because there's no, you know, you can't just train against one motorized rifle battalion. You have to know, you know, how it's formed, you know, if it's missing a regiment or not, and then what kit is in each one of those regiments. You know, they usually have all the same type of, of uh, BMP or BTR throughout the regiment. And give you an idea of just the general echelon concept. Um, you know, we're, we're used to like having, you know, uh, very nice, neat, orderly things. You know, we have a, a division and a provision has, you know, subordinate brigades and a brigade has subordinate battalions and battalions have subordinate companies and platoons. Etc. Russians are not structured like that. Most units have, you know, they'll have like a, you know, a brigade may have battalions that report to it, companies and a few platoons. It's very common. And then uh, look on there, like, you know, they have combined arms armies and army corps. The, the army corps are not subordinate to the combined arms armies. They're kind of parallel. They're on a parallel level. And same thing with the divisions. You know, it's not like you fight the op four uh, division. You know, the op four division has, you know, four brigades, pretty much like the U.S. used to have. And, uh, the way the Russians are structured is the brigade and division are, are seen as roughly similar. They have about the exact same kit. They just have less things in the motorized rifle brigade. So there's really no equipment differences. There's, there's plan to put a few things in the division that aren't in the brigade. But as of right now, there's no piece of equipment that you can find in a Russian division that you cannot find in a Russian brigade. Pretty much identical in terms of, of the types of kit they have. The quantities are different. There aren't joint assignments. When you are when you're commissioned, you, you go in a career field, and if you're in the command career field, you are going to command or be somebody's chief of staff your entire career. You're not going to move as much. You're not going to move every two or three years. Uh, you're going to come if you're in the command track. You're going to command younger. You're going to command longer. Um, and um, 
I, I've known battalion commanders with uh, with six years in command. Uh, after about year four, you're, you're probably not going to see a whole lot of new problems come up. Don't have joint assignments. You have a general staff. Uh, between your around your 10th year of service, you may be selected to uh, for the general staff. When you do that, you take off your branch insignia, put on general staff insignia, and that is what you are the rest of your career. You're uh, joined a permanent cast of operational planners. Some, after attending the uh, Academy of the General Staff, will go on to become military thinkers, uh, going after uh, candidate degrees, which are equivalent to our PhD and higher in military thinking. Uh, general staff officers are normally found in Moscow, but they're also found in the military districts and strategic operations commands, uh, which are co-located with military districts or Army Group headquarters. It's, it's not a matter of a, of a three-year tour in the Pentagon and getting, a, get, and getting a badge. If you're doing joint, you're doing joint permanently. And uh, I won't belabor this, but the Russians have a fundamentally different definition of operational art. So I know we got one, at least one SAMS graduate in the uh, in the audience out there. But if you look at what their definition of operational art is, it's a very different definition than our operational art. Theirs is about like the movement of or the uh, use of like large formations, cores, operational level formations on the battlefield. You know, if you look at ours, you know, a, a brigade commander in ours uses you know operational art. You know, when, when he uh, he or she puts together their plan, so. It's a it's a different concept of operational art when you when you hear Russians talk about it than we do. Again, not to belabor the point, but the uh, fundamentally different structure, kind of the way the Russians are structured. They have these uh, I would say combatant commands, but they have these what they call strategic directions, which are oriented towards the, of the country. You know, military districts or operate uh, joint strategic commands, north, west, south, central, east, and these. Joint strategic commands have these combined arms armies or tank armies or army corps that are subordinate to them. And then these uh, army, these what's called all together army groups. And then uh, these army groups have maneuver brigades and divisions that are assigned to them. So that's kind of the, the three tier transition. And, and so maybe in 2008, 2009, the Russians did away with their divisional concept. Now they're starting to bring that back. Uh, you get kind of idea between the um, the joint capabilities, how the joint capabilities are are integrated in with the uh, with the commands is it, unlike our system, you have uh, you know we can form we can kind of form a joint task force around any of the four branches. You know, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. We can do a joint task force around that. Russians aren't set up that way. The only way they can kind of do these joint task forces, the only place they have staffs big enough, are actually in these combined arms armies or tank armies or army corps. That's where they form their uh, their joint capabilities. So. Uh, that's at the level that they do it. They do uh, uh, just give you kind of idea of how these army groups are structured. The army group, combined arms, the combined arms army, uh, tank army, or army corps. Pretty much, this army group structure kind of combines, uh, kind of covers all three. And uh, they have kind of a general plan to have a uh, this kind of the general structure that they want. And then uh, obviously they have very different motorized rifle and tank brigades. And then depending on what area they have, they may have more uh, bridging units or air defense units. It just depends on what situation they have in the in the geography, the particular area of the country. This is where they go ahead and integrate those joint capabilities at. This is where they have, you know, they'll have this combined arms army and they'll have an augment PKS or the Air Force equivalent, and uh, they'll start adding that stuff in at this level. You know, these are the kind of assets that they would have attached to this army group when they actually go forward. So the, the slide previous was kind of the organic assets. This slide is stuff that would probably be attached to it or could be attached to it in, in the event that uh, they went on to go to war footing. Kind of interesting when the Russians are talking about if they do this large scale combat operations uh, concept and what that would look like. And what they sort of talk about is point strategic commands would kind of form up as a front and then uh, they're, they're, the fronts are kind of oriented towards these strategic directions. And then below them, the combined arms army would uh, go on the different operational directions, right? So uh, kind of the, the way they kind of see it is once war is declared, they, they, or before you know the initial period of war, they declare uh, a theater of military action. And then in that theater of military action, there is multiple strategic directions, which is about the same thing as the, uh, which is the same thing for them as the military districts, you know, OSK, north east west south and central and uh so they, they orientate a, uh, and then each one of those strategic directions has multiple operational directions 
and then the operational directors would probably be covered down on by the combined arms armies or tank armies, if that makes sense. And they talk about combined arms army, they talk about no, joint strategic command functioning as a front. Not like ours with our combatant commanders for CENTCOM and UCOM, you know, these guys, the guys in these positions, they're actually controlling troops on the ground. They're fighting that rear fight. And we talk about here, they talk about this inverted front. You know, they don't believe that if there's a war with NATO in the future, it's going to look like World War II and World War One. We have, you know, somewhat neat fronts and lines. They believe that uh, we're going to, you know, they're going to be fighting throughout the depth of the defense all the way back into, you know, that whole Western military district. There's going to be operations going on. Maybe it's it's high high intensity combat operations up more towards up towards the border, and then the back maybe NATO soft in the rear information operations and that sort of thing. So they, they believe that this this fight's going to go on throughout the whole depth of the strategic defense. Talk about this inverted front, what an inverted front could look like. This is an example of a brigade, but it gives an example of of uh, you know we see we've seen the typical kind of Russian two up two back uh, looks for a brigade. But this is a difference. This shows how what an inverted front might look like at a brigade level. Let's see what it Yeah, and basically what we have here is uh, a look at the near future. And the Russians are talking about the fragmented battlefield where you're not going to be tied in neatly on the flanks. And you're going to you're going to do a lot of maneuver defense. And this is an example of, uh, of a set maneuver defense. And what you have is an attack by a U.S. armored division. And what you have is a brigade that is deployed in two forward uh, villages uh, with a uh, fire sack in between them. Uh, they have artillery planning. They have air planning, ambushes out front, uh, and designed, designed to take on the American uh, tank division. and. You have a third battalion in uh, as a counterattack force, which attacks into the uh, into the fire sack, and then falls back into the fourth village. Uh, you have artillery firing uh, your your various uh, howitzer battalions from the brigade, and your MLRS battalion, and they they all have fires planned in the area. The MLRS brigade will fall back out of the picture eventually. You have a uh, supporting uh, artillery regiment that is in the defense back in the by the uh, red dot with the white line down. That's that's an airfield symbol. But basically, what they plan this is a this is an attrition battle against this uh, U.S. tank division, where they want to fight that force them into urban combat where they feel that they can uh, they can really do damage on armor and slow them down and attrit them considerably, uh, setting them up uh, for a further defense deeper or possibly counterattack. But uh, moving on to the reconnaissance fire system. So how, how does that how does that work? Basically, the Russians have been real big into this idea of a recon fire strike complex. They've had this idea for a long, long time. And back in Soviet times, they had the idea, but they just couldn't get it to work because they didn't have the right comms, they didn't have good enough comms, and they didn't have the, the right computers. Now that's really tr uh, turning around for them. They uh, Soviet times they had like a, a tactical system and they had more of an operational system for fires. And now they've kind of merged these two systems together into the reconnaissance fire system. Look at this gentleman here, uh, this General Marusin. Uh, he's kind of like the chief of reconnaissance for the Russian military. And he said, you know, today the uh, reconnaissance engagement cycle can take literally 10 seconds. We'll talk about, you know, in situations where it can take 10 seconds and, uh, you know, why they can do it fast, really, really fast in certain circumstances. Two systems together into the reconnaissance fire system. Look at this gentleman here, uh, this General Marusin. Uh, he's kind of like the chief of reconnaissance for the Russian military. And he said, you know, today the uh, reconnaissance engagement cycle can take literally 10 seconds. We'll talk about, you know, in situations where it can take 10 seconds and uh, you know why they can do it fast, really, really fast in certain circumstances. It gives you an idea on the echelon concept. It's an interesting time. It gives you an idea of how they envision uh, uh, the deep fires fight at, at which echelon. And then again, the different kind of Russian fires assets. Um, you know, if you look at the, you know, the howitzer, which is kind of standard, uh, the aircraft, cruise missiles, Towards the left hand of the screen, that's a coastal defense missile system, um, the scan, they have, uh, uh, cruise missiles, and uh, 
MLRS, and finally a uh, thermobaric rocket launcher. So the gist is, is taking all these different kinds of fires and then putting them in one command and control system and these, you know, these different fires and these different, you know, Navy, Air Force, and Army, putting them all in one system that, uh, you know, your soldier on the ground can type in a few keys and then there's a decision can be made to what, whether to target that, not, that, that asset or not. And then with what kind of, uh, of uh, system to use. Here's the artillery group system. Just we have a lot of majors here from the staff college. They always want to do a paper on integrated fires command or talk about how to destroy the Russian integrated fires command. There's no integrated fires command in the Russian army. That's an op four construct. They just, they just don't have one. The Russians do have an artillery group. What that is, is just an ad hoc formation when ad echelon, when the uh, maneuver unit goes out, it's fires assets, breaks off into what they call an artillery group. It's a doctrinally defended area and they uh, conduct operations. Just kind of the rules for it are on the left, you know, how these these uh, artillery groups are formed, what's in them, what's not in them, and in, uh, how the assets are handled. But there's, there's no integrated fires command per se. There's just these artillery groups that are formed ad hoc after the unit goes to the field but they're, they're not standing commands by any stretch of the imagination. And then the Russians, they're bringing back the heavy fires into the uh, arsenal. Some of the lessons learned from Ukraine and Syria was they really needed uh, heavy artillery to kind of bust these people out of these urban environments. Uh, you know, it would take all day just raining down 152 shells to uh, destroy a target. And, you know, you get a couple 2S4, you know, a couple of you know, 240 millimeter mortar shells or 203 millimeter uh, self-propelled artillery shells. It would just make it go a lot quicker. So. Uh, they have brought these things were all taken out of the inventory or taken out of the active service, you know, 15 years ago. And now they're all being brought back, not all of them, but they're bringing back in a, a portion of them. And they're usually you don't find these at the at the brigade level. These will be found at the combined arms army level in the artillery brigades. They're, they're not something you're going to run into in the UAVs. Uh, kind of the interesting about the Russian UAVs is for the ground forces. They don't have anything that requires an airfield for the guys in the ground forces because they don't have to worry about finding airfield. Everything they have in the ground force is going to be catapult launched. So they don't have to worry about uh, landing in a particular area or taking off. So the bigger stuff, the four post, that's run by the Air Force or the Navy. The four post UAV, that one requires the airfield. All the smaller ones like the Orlon 10, the Granat, Tachyon, those things are all used. Uh, the idea is some more of the reconnaissance assets. These things are found more at your, uh, yeah, at, at the brigade level. These are found more at the brigade level. It's all standard assets at brigade level. With the exception of the, the Credo 1C and that acoustic system, those might be up at the uh, combined arms army level. I take it back. The idea is some more of the reconnaissance assets. These things are found more at your, uh, yeah, at, at the brigade level. These are found more at the brigade level. It's all standard assets at brigade level. With the exception of the, the Credo 1C and that acoustic system, those might be up at the uh, combined arms army level. I take it back. Big into fiber if they're in defensive positions and have time to set up to, to really enjoy the fiber because there's not that EM footprint. And uh, they have really good, you know, uh, software to find radios. They have some very good radios now. So uh, communications is not a problem. I'm not going to get too much into it, but you can kind of idea of how they're envisioning this recon fire strike system, like how it ties together. And uh, you can see how the uh, the bottom slide is how you know, more the tactical level of what goes on with the battalion. You can see the integration between the ISR assets at the different echelons. I'm not going to get too much into it, but you can kind of idea of how they're envisioning this recon fire strike system, like how it ties together. And uh, you can see how the uh, the bottom slide is how you know, more the tactical level of what goes on with the battalion. You can see the integration between the ISR assets at the different echelons. And then the way that they're kind of implementing all this stuff together is they have this new system, not a new, it's been out for the last 10, 12 years called Strelitz. It's the new uh, command and control system. But this is what all the forward controllers, the uh, artillery guys, the recon guys, all of you guys have this computer system. You have a little video you can actually see them using it. But uh, you know, in theory, they put something into there, and uh, you know, the coordinates pop out on on you know artillery guy's screen, and then they they pop those out. They can do it uh, relatively pretty quick. Look on here, you'll, you hear about the Russians doing really fast. You know, having uh, UAV up and then be able to put it on target. And one of the reasons that they can do that, or one of the ways they do that, is instead of having a big discombobulated way of uh, you know, networking everything through the system. Sometimes if they call it a provisional recon reconnaissance fire strike system, sometimes they'll just put the UAV operator, you know, the UAV team in with the uh, the fire battery or the reconnaissance unit. And those guys will, you know, the uh, UAV will get the target 
and they will just give it directly to the fire battery, the FDC, or the reconnaissance vehicle, which relays it back to the FDC, and then they lay target. They don't. It's not a big deal for them about clearing airspace. As soon as they get a target, they'll they'll light it up. Even if they have other assets in the area that uh, they're not quite as risk averse as we are. Future of Russian combined attack. Okay. What's interesting about this is what you have are part of a three brigade attack, uh, a Russian combined arms army attack of the future, attacking against U.S. Uh, armored brigade. What's interesting about it, they have robotic vehicles. And if you look in the upper right hand corner, you see a black box that says reserve of subunits sub equipped with robotic vehicles. And if you could spend a lot of time looking at this map, you would see that these Robotic vehicles are used uh, as direct assault vehicles designed to draw enemy fire and destroy uh, enemy locations. They are designed for uh, robotic mine clearing. Basically, robotics, a big part of their, their modernization effort that they're going through right now. They don't start out with Robbie the Robot. Some of these are Robbie the Robot, but they've been into robotics for a long time. Uh, we've still got four men in the tank. They've had a three-man tank crew since the T-62. Why? Well, they've got an automatic loader. Now, the first models of the automatic loader tended to load uh, pieces of the gunner in it as well, but it got better over time. And since the T-62, they have had automatic loaders, and they've gotten pretty good with their automatic loader system. So a lot of their robotics are not complete standalone systems, though a lot of these are designed um, or will be designed uh, to be tethered or, or connected to, uh, oh, for example, the Armada. Uh, one of the future projections of the Armada is they're gonna put it out with, uh, with robot tanks in front that the Armada is going to control to get out in front, draw fire, identify targets, engage targets, but allow the Armada to get close enough to whack them. Uh, so there's there's a lot of effort in this area for the future. Hopefully you could follow that. I, I talked pretty fast. I just want to have three minutes of talk time and about 20 minutes of Q&A time. So I want to make sure I met the time hack. So I'm subject to your questions. Gentlemen, uh, Colonel Fonell here. So real quick, you, you, you talked how the Russian military does think operations. Um, have, have any exploration or study, or, or can you speak to how the, the Russian concept of, of combined operations with, with allied countries? I, I don't mean combined arms. I'm talking about a JTF, but like a CTF kind of thing or a CJTF. These countries that have like from these post-Soviet system, it's it's very easy for them to work together, like the Syrians. So they, they're all in that post-Soviet mod or that Soviet area model. They do things the exact same way. So in in Syria. They just took the whole Russian staff and they would put that Russian staff with a Syrian unit, even though, and they'd have some translators in there. But the the MDMP process was the same, so it was very easy for them to work together that way. Does that make sense? We're getting a lot of uh, recent developments out of out of Syria. They do a combat testing on on all of their new equipment, and older equipment, uh, to make improvements on it. Uh, they're getting combat experience by rotating entire staffs into the area. Uh, so, so they're they're picking up and they're improving from that. I mean, I've got I've got a couple questions. It's uh, it's Toby Bennett. I've got uh, two questions. The first is is about our our futures efforts, our modernization we have going on in the U.S. Army. We're putting a lot of uh, investment into that. How long would you assess once we get those those capabilities on board in the next decade, where we have a competitive advantage against those Russian forces? Uh, and then the second question is. They, they are still largely a conscript army. So how, how are they overcoming and how effective are they at, at overcoming that? Why don't we pick up the first, the second part okay. first. Oh, you do that first. They are no longer a conscript army. The larger portion of the soldiery is, is contract. And you don't have conscripts for very long. They don't want to get rid of the conscript system because they want to have people who have been trained somewhat in the military uh for emergency duty for call up for reserves they're still reworking their their reserve system if you look at a btg contract soldiers if you're going to spend expensive uh, time and training uh you want to pull in a trigger you want him doing 
things that uh, are valuable and not have to turn around and train as replacement. So basically, they have, BTGs are full of contract soldiers. Uh, there's a lot of heartburn in the, um, the maintenance uh, community because they're getting a lot of conscripts. Because what do you do with a conscript? Books and uh, folks working in the depot, loading, driving, that sort of thing are, are pretty, uh, pretty easy things to do that you can get conscripts doing in a hurry. It's the harder things, and you don't want to spend a lot of training time and dollars on these guys. So what you have is uh, normally in a brigade, if you've got two BGGs, you've got uh, two highly trained units, uh, and then you've got others that are okay. So just in regard to the modernization, uh, so they're threat-based, right? So I'll give you an example. When uh, when we when we started fielding the uh, Apache D, you know, it had that longer reach. The Russians were concerned that brigades weren't going to be adequately protected and had to go to war. What they did is when we started talking about the longbows, they modernized. I don't know if you guys know what a Tunguska is or a you know a SA-19 Bison. Guys familiar with that air defense system? It's a uh, it's kind of looks like a Pantsir. It's like a missile gun system. It's on a track out there with the ground forces, air defense battalion, maneuver brigades. It was very much. You know, like I said, it's, it's not capability-based for them. It's threat-based. And in regards to current modernization and the MDO concept, we get a lot of questions of what are the Russians doing. I don't think they know. I don't think there's a full understanding or comprehension of it yet. I'm not changing anything right now. I know what you're looking for. Yeah, it is. And it just, I don't know how how fast is their flash to bang on this. Yeah, so they're continually in development. So like even, you know, you hear about this Armada tank that there so may come out one of these days. You know, they're already talking about what the next tank after the Armada, what it's going to have. And, and they do... It's it's uh, evolutionary development. We you know U.S. military wants the revolution. They're not doing modernization in this brief, but um, they'll they'll modernize a portion of the force. Handle that. Does that make sense? The whole force is incremental. It's not like us where we you know, we have a new pot of Abrams. You know, active duty guys will get it, then the National Guard will get it. Eventually, everybody will have the same modification. The Russians don't do modernization like that. Different different thinking about modernization. They basically take their old stuff, rebuild it to modern standards. You know, don't get excited about meeting the Armada. Get excited about meeting the T-72V3. Everything's incrementally modernized. Sir, you got a quick question about Zarya. Do we have any further information on that? On what, sir? You on said what? that the secure operating system they're using called Zarya. Oh, yeah. So what they do, it's a Linux-based system. And uh, the Russians, <laughs> they're real keen on, uh, if you were to Russia, like when I was in Russia like 20 years ago, everybody had a bootleg Microsoft Windows operating system. And they realized, like, hey, you know, for security purposes, we don't want people using U.S. equipment. So what they did is they went with a, you know, a Linux. They went with a Linux kernel, and um, they built their own operating system based off a of Linux kernel. And uh, it runs off, like, you know, if they have, like, for military and government purposes, like, if you have anything that's um, anything on a secure network, it's supposed to be based off this thing. And what we talk about when the Russians, when they're doing modernization, you know, they talk about getting these new systems. Uh, I'm not always sure if there's always new hardware with it. I think sometimes it's just like an application that they put on the operating system. But by whenever they build anything, it has to be uh, it has to be able to integrate in with this uh, Linux-based operating system because they don't want to have to, you know, if they get like a new ISR component, they don't want to have to put in a bunch of new infrastructure in order to use it. It needs to be able to plug and play in with the, with the uh, existing architecture. We're, we're open source. We're, we we develop it. We we read what the uh, what the Russians are writing in their professional journals and such, and go from there. Yes, sir. So as you talk about these uh, robotic tanks out front, do the Russians see those as, as uh, um, combat systems in and of themselves, or are they specifically, uh, I'll just say drones for the, for the, you know, their sole purpose is to draw fire, they're expendable. No, they're also they're also writing and talking about these are going to engage as well. They just don't drive up there and take fire. They're they're out there and they're uh, they're exchanging rounds. Uh, this is where they're working for. This isn't today, but uh, this is when they look at war in the future. Uh, this is one of the things that they're they're looking at is the development of robotics. And are they standalone? Right now, they seem to be tethered to a central figure, so they're uh, so they don't run out and run amok and, and wipe out villages. But uh, yeah, this is this is uh, this is drawing a lot of interest right now in the uh, in the Russian professional uh, journals and uh, press. 
Pete, gentlemen, one one more question for you. Um, so the Russian way of war was more heavily uh, leaned on mass. They're, you know, kind of deciding factor kind of, kind of thing, whereas the American way of war was much more firepower centric. Um, has has that changed? So, uh, I mean, that, just, that has changed, but not that much. It's it's evolved. Okay. The Russians have always been an artillery army with a lot of tanks. During World War II, there were two large artillery armies in the world, ours and the Russians. We got away from it, they stayed with it, and they look at mass in terms of fires and maneuver in terms of fires. And one of the things that they're looking at with the uh, with the uh, new coalitia, uh, if and when we see that. That's a new howitzer. That's a new, new howitzer, uh, which will fire a lot more rounds downrange in a hurry before it has to move. But they're talking about uh, changing that from 18 to 24 uh, tubes uh, in, in a battalion. So you've got a system that fires more ammunition in a quicker period of time, and you're going to add more tubes. Why? Well, the way they look at fires is fires enable maneuver. These are the things that allow the tanks uh, to get out there and to do their job. I'd say they still emphasize mass, but the mass is more fires. And oh, by the way, they have not gotten rid of the concept of mass of mass fires and the power of fires. We talked about recce fire and precision fires, but they also still retain the ability uh, and practice mass fires. So just to, so there's no misunderstanding, they're not talking about putting the, the this new howitzer in the brigades and divisions. They're talking about putting this new howitzer in the artillery brigades. Usually the artillery brigades have a bunch of uh, of uh, you know just standard 152 uh, you know towed or self-propelled artillery and what they may be doing is putting one of these battalions up there and then taking away two of the battalions that are uh, two of the self-propelled battalions that are there does that make sense we don't, we don't know exactly what they're going to do with it but it's this system is not designed to be in a brigade or uh, or division yet it, it's primarily intended to be at the at the artillery brigade level at the combined arms armies you're going to see these two s35s in the um, in the maneuver brigade, you, you probably see them attached through the artillery group. Yeah, um, yeah that's that's how you you would see them on, on the battlefield. Is what they're talking about right now. And you're not going to see them. You know, you're not going to see them get rid of a thousand two S ones or two S nineteens and replace them with these coalitions. This is like a, a really a niche capability. They're very expensive, and uh, you're not going to be seeing a lot of these things. In, in my small infantry mind, that that begs the question of, of how do the Russians see. Um, supporting relationships such as, you know, direct support, general support, general support reinforcing as they link fires and maneuver? Well, those are those are Western concepts. Basically, uh, if, if you're in a brigade, you've got a brigade artillery group. Uh, so you've got two howitzer battalions, an MRL battalion and an anti-tank battalion. And they are normally, they normally either support the brigade, or uh, if you've got a battalion that's doing a uh, maneuver battalion that's doing something important, they may be attached directly to that battalion and they answer to the request for fire from that battalion. But basically, uh, they, they try to give artillery to a, a particular unit and say, go with it. But that unit better use it well or they could they could lose it if it's if it's an add-on. They are artillery heavy. There's a reason for this, and one of the reasons is they lost a lot of their manpower with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Manpower has become a much more expensive commodity. While they were going through all this business about becoming Russia, they also reduced the time of conscript service. So uh, your conscript isn't as valuable as he once was. And so these contract soldiers who you're putting the time, energy, and training into are very valuable indeed, and you don't want to lose them. And so you protect them, you take care of them, you provide for them, and one of the ways you provide for them is more artillery. 
It's not the steamroller of World War II. It's a professional force. It's an artillery army with a lot of tanks. Separating maneuver and fires for them would be like, you know, how do you, you know, how do you separate those two things? They, they, they just see it as the same. You know, everything kind of stems from the commanders. All the war fighting functions stems from the commanders. Is how he sees to distribute them on the battlefield. It's separating them into these different areas is a foreign concept to them. It's not the way they do it. A quick question. I'm just trying to wrap my head around. They don't necessarily have war fighting functions at the staff level, but uh, comparing their officer of professional development and their timeline there with how we organize and manage officers throughout their career, do they have functional branches, i.e. like we have Signal Corps, MI, infantry, etc., or are they just, you're a staff guy for the rest of your career and you'll just be a generalized staff guy? Over. When he's talking about the, the staff guys, those are guys on the general staff, the, t the top the cream of the crop of each branch gets pulled out at a certain point and they get moved up into that general staff. Most of the guys, most people will be like, if you're a, if you're a signal officer, you will be a signal officer your whole career and you will never do anything out of branch. You, your whole, you'll have three things. You either be training to do your job, doing your job or training somebody else to do your job. There's no, there's nothing out of branch for them. So you'll have uh, they will leave guys, you know, like your, your battalion, your brigade S4, and you may be there for eight years. You know what I mean? They, they don't they don't move them around. If you're if you're not a fast burner, you're going to spend your your whole career in pretty much the same area. So you get your you marry, you have a wife, you have kids. They go to they go to the same school, go through high school equivalent, uh, and um, you've you've changed jobs within the area, within your branch. But you haven't moved around from pillar to post every two to three years. Uh, in in the U.S. model, and enlisted guys very, I mean, they can they can stay the same post their whole career, and a lot of times officers too. If they're thinking about joining the Russian army, Jim, I got a question for you. Uh, a lot of information on this slide regarding electronic warfare strikes uh, from the Russian side. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about their depth of electronic warfare and how they uh, utilize it, integrate it into the maneuver operations? I'm sure, you're familiar with the, the current structure, but for a long time they have a uh, they have an EW. Uh, company in every maneuver brigade. It's just, you know, we talk about the war fighting functions. What does EW do? You know, for them, uh, it has kind of three functions. It does the traditional fires thing where you can actually go out and jam people. But uh, probably more importantly, it's doing a lot of SIGINT collection. You know, I imagine they don't turn the thing on. Or, you know, they're not doing active jamming a whole lot. I imagine a lot of this going out there is collecting information about where the enemy's at. And uh, they have a close relationship with the artillery and the air defense for tipping and queuing. So if you look at, uh, it's not on this one, but if you look at some of the other graphics, a lot of times you'll see the uh, EW battalion headquarters or company headquarters vehicle will be backed by the uh, artillery fire group. And what they do is um, they have all these, they have different assets at different wavelengths. They can go through and uh, they can kind of triangulate where different, uh, different SIGIN emissions are coming from on the battlefield. And they can use that information and relay it to the, uh, artillery fire group so in addition to that there's also a SIGIT company that kind of helps in the collection too and in terms of you know that's kind of the the fires piece of it and then in terms of protection the main thing they offer is EW jamming like precision guided munitions and that's not just you know, obviously they have the big Zytel the R330 Zytel that's in the company that can do the jamming but they do a lot of jamming from um, uh, for, especially for GPS jamming uh, they'll do a lot of that not from the EW company, but they have other assets in the brigade that can do EW jamming. So like the MLRS system, you guys see that 100, or have you seen the 122 millimeter MLRS rig they got? Anyway, they have a certain payload, they have a certain uh, rocket they can fire from there that can uh, drop off um, these little EW jammers, these little um, UHF jammers to block GPS. Same thing for uh, the artillery system. They don't use the artillery ones as much, but they have the tube artillery systems can can launch an EW jammer, right? So, you know, it's very easy to find a big GPS jammer on the battlefield. It's very, very difficult to find 100 little GPS jammers on the battlefield, you know, because it's hard to triangulate where that signal's coming from. And they also have um, EW, like if you look at the UAVs, the, the UAV companies are not sole purpose. The UAV companies are multi-purpose. So usually the, the UAV companies have three main, or four main things they do. It's artillery, you know, 
reconnaissance of the battlefield, signal retrans, they don't have a lot of satellite comms, they have bad satellite comms, so they, they use a lot for signal retrans. And then EW jam, they, they have an EW payload they can put on that UAV. So they have some, you know, they have EW, a lot of UAV, uh, EW capabilities in the EW company. They also have some stuff dispersed throughout the, the brigade. Gentlemen, it seems to me that if, if, if an officer is, is selected for the command track, is going to stay in the command track uh, for the majority of, of their career uh, within the Russian Army, they've really got to be endless. They, they've got to be the, the brilliant one. They can do all of the synchronization of what we would call warfighting functions. But they, so a brigade commander's got all these tools at their disposal. And, and I'm just trying to figure out, you know, with, with very small staffs, how do they synchronize effects on the battlefield, uh, whether it's, you know, intelligence collection and, and all this kind of thing. I mean, you, you go down the rabbit hole and it's all of a sudden, like, I, I can't uh, imagine a, a BCT commander that's, they're so brilliant that they can take in all of that information and, and integrate it all all at once. The AMDMP process is different. So, like for them, you know, the you know we have from their perspective, we have a staff-driven process. You know, the staff develops the course of action. In the Russian system, the commander develops the course of action. The commander does the course of action. That's that's the first thing that happens in their their planning process. Yeah. So he's is he says, okay, here's our mission, and this is how we're doing it. Yeah, staff make it happen. I'm going on reconnaissance. It's just like he called. It's like a football game, right? It's just like a quarterback. You know, he, he, you don't, they don't go out there and the way we do it, we go out there, we make a new play for each each time we do a planning. Those guys go out there and they call a play out of the playbook, and that's what that commander did. He's just calling a play out of his playbook. And one of the things that's driving their whole thing is to turn inside our decision process. So, so we, there's a lot of articles out there on on how to get into. In our inside our UDA loop and 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 make these things happen. When they talk about this automated command and control, a big part of this is how do you take uh, this process, you know, the MDMP process they have, and and add it to a computerized system because you know it's it's more uh, you know it looks their process looks a lot more like an algorithm than ours does. It's not really people centric. It's just like all right, here's my decision point, you know, yes or no. <laughs> Now, what's my next decision? That's it's it's a very much an algorithm. Uh, there's a lot of pro, a lot of effort in making things fast, and uh, mistakes happen in war. So uh, it's it's a different it's a different approach. They will separate. Yeah, there's not they're not as risk averse as we are. You know, their commanders can make mistakes and not get relieved. Some things that will, you know, you, you just get fired left and right for in the U.S. military. They're like, mm, you know, accidents uh, happen. Uh, accidents happen. But he's a good commander. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, we don't we don't see many people. Um, Surviving court martials for, and then going on and pinning on stars. But, yeah, uh, I mean, he's got like if, if the guy's hot, I mean, like, hey man, we need this guy, and uh, they, they will keep him in. They, they they're all about like, can you produce? It's all it's all about. Uh, it's not you know ends justify the means. It's you know for the survival of the state, whatever you have to do is justified. I mean, we we used to talk an awful lot about initiative or freedom of maneuver is not necessarily delegated down to to subordinate leaders in in the the russian way of war or, or whatever kind of loops back to your you know discussion of the the algorithmic i'll make up a word uh, algorithmic uh way of doing doing business is that still true or is that like how, how does a commander at a given echelon receive guidance to 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 execute well he knows his commander's intent you know what your commander wants and you're going to make it happen. And your decision is going to be to support that commander's intent. Uh, your commander at the higher levels is not going to tell you how to do it. He's going to tell you, these are your tools that I'm, I'm giving you to make it happen. And this is what has to happen. It's much more explicit than our method. The other thing about their decision front is most tactical orders are a map sheet signed by the commander and his chief of staff, which has uh, impact uh, legally if things go very badly, and maybe a one to two page uh, written add-on. So you think about your last battalion order and how thick it was, and they're, they're basically map sheets. But the thing is, they're not, they're not going to do a lot of finessing. They have battle drills, they have ways of doing it, and Okay, does this make them predictable? Well, not if you put several battle drills together. What they want is something that they can do that has predictability 
and you can do it quickly. Sure, if I could ask a real quick question. Uh, could you, either you gentlemen talk about the uh, non-commissioned officer corps of the Russian army and they've evolved over time? Because I remember back in the day, they were pretty much just followers. Uh, do they have a more important role in the army these days? Over. Yeah, we got one called NCOs. I probably call them enlisted professionals. The um, the command is strictly within that officer corps, institutional out with the the enlisted pros. What they have specific jobs they do, and they're really good at them. But uh, that's what they do. They spend their whole career doing that. And even uh, for the for the Air Force, they even have uh, certain NCOs that go to four year colleges, graduate, and have a bachelor's degree, and then they're they're NCOs, right? And, but they're very technically focused. Totally different system that we have. We're looking for people to de, be specialists, not generalists, and definitely not involved with the leadership part. I think we've exhausted each other. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, appreciate your hospitality. Gentlemen, definitely appreciate your time. Absolutely, thank you very much. And kind of we said at the beginning, and as, as you've highlighted a couple times now, or several times, you know, this is a completely different way of, of thinking about warfare than being here in the American Army. They certainly, you know, appreciate your time as, as stated. And this is great, gentlemen, and, and definitely really appreciate your time and, and your insights. Uh, always good to get a, a different look at things. Thank you for joining us on The Crucible, the JRTC experience. The Joint Readiness Training Center is the premier crucible training experience. We prepare units to fight and win in the most complex environments against world-class opposing forces. We are America's leadership laboratory. Again, we'd like to thank our guests for participating. This podcast was created and produced by Mr. John Mabes. It was recorded and edited by Chief Thomas Rich and researched by First Lieutenant Anthony Cho. Intro vocals were done by Mr. Robert Chopper. Special thanks to Captain Jermaine Branch and Mr. Jeff England from Public Affairs. Be sure to like and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest warfighting TTPs learned through the crucible that is the Joint Readiness Training Center. Follow us by going to https colon forward slash forward slash linktr dot ee forward slash jrtc we'd like to thank our partners at the center for army lessons learned of the combined arms center especially the jrtc call observations detachment be sure to follow them on social media as well follow them at https colon forward slash forward slash www dot army dot mil forward slash c-a-l-l don't forget to like subscribe and review us wherever you listen or watch your podcasts and be sure to stay tuned for more in the near future the crucible the jrtc experience is a product of the joint readiness training center